Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Some of you may know Joseph. I'm his uncle, and the reason I say that is that Joseph is preaching up in Toledo, where I'm a pastor this morning, and so I'm pinch hitting down here, but not for Joseph. For my brother Timothy, who's the pastor here, one of the pastors here, and so it's good to be with you this morning. Um, right now, Joseph is probably f- finishing his sermon in Toledo. So we'll pray for them as we as we finish looking at the word and ask God to be with us and are looking at His word this morning. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm. Tim's younger brother, and for those of you who don't know me, I'm down, I'm, my name's David, I am 56 years old, I am the younger brother, he is my big brother in every way, and, <laughs> and, and I love him, and so I love you, and I'm, I'm grateful to you for your kindness to me over the years, your prayers for me, and, and the love you've shown me as I've as I have gone down in health and now, as you can see, back up. <laughs> and uh, so I've, it's a privilege to be with you this, this morning. We're going to look together at um, 1 Samuel 17, beginning in verse 20. But I'd like to just give, for the sake of our memories, a brief recap of what happens before we get to verse 20. 1 Samuel 17 is the story of David and Goliath, and thus it's a story that almost everyone on earth has some knowledge of. It's one of those stories of the Bible that you can expect anyone anywhere in the world to have at least heard of, and it's one of the great stories. I was told as I, uh, by David Wagner, as I was talking to him before the service, that he and my brother Timothy have argued for years over to how to preach from this, and I'm sure I'll dissatisfy both of them. <laughs> David is a young man, and we've read about David before this. It's, it's the chronology of events at this point in David's life is, is somewhat confusing, but we've got to remember as we come across Scripture that the old-time theologians didn't feel the need to be chronological always. Luke says, I'm, I'm giving you an orderly account of the events. And so you can guess from that or uh, you, can, you can sort of grab from that orderly word the idea that it's chronological. He's attempting to be chronological. It's not necessarily the way with Mark or John or Matthew. You know, they, they are not necessarily, and then Samuel as well. Samuel isn't always giving things in order. And so in Samuel, we have the story of the Philistines and the Israelites coming to battle against each other. They meet on either side of a, a valley. On the mountains on one side are the Philistines. On the mountains on the other side are the children of Israel. And there's a champion who is uh, among the Philistines who is a, a mighty fighter from his youth. His name is Goliath. He stands, uh, I can't remember, six or seven cubits high, nine, ten feet tall. He carries a, a javelin or a spear that has a head that weighs 600 shekels of iron. I believe that's heavier than a shot put. 
And uh, he's just a monster of a guy. He wants to do battle by proxy. He says, look, you send a champion, I'll send a champion, we'll send a champion, and whoever wins, that'll be it. There's another time when it happens in Scripture with Joab and Abner. And on both occasions, though, there's uh, one party that wins and the other that loses. They don't follow through on the commitment. I don't think that ever happens. But, um, But this man, Goliath, this giant comes out, and he's the champion for the Philistines. And he says time after time, come on out, fight me. Don't you have a man? Are you all puny little nothings? Give me a man who will fight me. Give me a man. Give me a man. And all the Israelites are going, ah, 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 ah. you know, didn't sleep so well last night. Had a little bout of something. I'm not sure today's my day. And for 40 days, this goes on and no one comes. Now, David is home. He's the youngest of eight brothers. Three of his oldest brothers are in the battle. They're on the, the, the mountainside with the Israelites. And the other four of the brothers we don't know about. But David is going back and forth taking, taking food and supplies from his father Normally, he's with the sheep, watching over the sheep, but then he is on occasion taking food and supplies, and it appears he hasn't been there for 40 days because he's not aware of this challenge, which we're told had been going on for 40 days with Goliath going out there. So he arrives, he takes roasted grain and loaves of bread to the camp, 10 cuts of cheese, and he goes there, and we read in verse 20, so David arose early in the morning and left the flock with a keeper and took the supplies, and went as Jesse had commanded him, and he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath, named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines, and he spoke these same words, and David heard them. When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. The men of Israel said, have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him saying, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? People answered him in accord with this word, saying, Thus it will be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you've come down in order to see the battle. But David said, what have I done now? Wasn't it just a question? Then he turned away from him to another and said the same thing. And the people answered him, the same thing as before. When the words which David spoke were heard, they told them that Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Then Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth while he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. David said, 
The Lord had delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear. He will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage, which is beautiful and understandable. Yet, Father, it's deep and it's challenging. Beneath the surface of this story is truth that's important for us, and we ask that we may live by it, that we may be transformed by your word. I pray it for myself, and I ask that you'll, by your spirit, guide my thoughts and words, and that together we may obey the word of God, and that it may have power within our lives. Pray it in Jesus' name, amen. The word of God is, if we were to compare it with something in life, we would need to be careful and thoughtful in what we compared it with. I think it's common for some to think that the word of God is like a, a garden, Lord, with treasures rich and rare. And uh, anyone know this song I'm quoting? And hidden in the garden. Uh, da, 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 da. Can't remember, but I remember as a kid reading it and thinking of this garden filled with little baubles. And that was the word of God. And the word of God is not that. The word of God is, is so different from the way we approach it. It's so different from the kinds of things that we devote our lives to. Like the, uh, the movies we watch, the pictures we put on our wall, uh, or, the, or even many of the books we read. I think many of us look at the word of God as though it's Narnia. And we enter through the wardrobe into a distant land and a wonderful place by going to the word of God. And it's filled with treasures and crazy stuff but then we have to come back out the wardrobe into our life and that's just simply not what the word of God is the word of God is not a a destination but a guide it's a map it's a, a guide unto our feet a light unto our path and if we look at it as a destination we misconstrue it. We're going to use it wrongly. We're going to, the word of God should be like the, the book I bought back in 1982, The Complete Idiot's Guide to Repairing a Volkswagen. A, a hippie handbook. It was one of the hippie manuals. And, and it, was, it was made with a, a wire binding so that you could flip it open, put it down beside your car, and not have the page turn. We should have wire bindings on our Bible, you know, so that we put it down and say, this is my guide, rather than something that naturally closes. It's the guide. It should be worn and dirty from the work that we're doing with it. My complete idiot's guide was soon just so filled with grease, I had to look hard to read it at points. But it helped me. It let me rebuild my engine. It let me know how to work on a car. This is the word of God. It's our guide to life. So we come to David and this story, and it's a wonderful story, but it's not a story. It's a guide. It's a map. It's the way you should live. It's what God wants from you. God expects those who taunt the people of God to come to a bad end and you to be the facilitator of that bad end. I was listening yesterday to someone who said that they were out I think it was my brother Timothy who was telling me that he was out at the abortion clinic talking to this dear older man at the abortion clinic who was in some way crippled, 
who would sit there day after day at the clinic protesting abortion. And he said that the man sort of chuckled and said to him, earlier a car went by. And the guy who was driving leaned out and gave me the finger the whole way until he smacked head on into the car in front of him. <laughs> God does not want his people taunting, taunted. He does not want people taunting himself. And when he, his people are taunted, he's taunted. We should understand that God expects us to have victories that are akin to the victory of David. That this is to be our life, our walk, what we do. <clears throat> So I want to challenge you, especially you who are young, to pick up the mantle of David, to, to start following this map, not to enter into it as a great story from the past, but to enter into it as your future, that you are David and that there will be a Goliath and that you are going to fight him and that you're going to do so in the way David did and you're going to have the same kind of glory. You're going to accomplish the same kinds of feats. So I say to you, uh, I want to talk to you this morning about responsibility and being responsible. And it's the character of greatness that greatness always assumes responsibility. I was in the shower this morning, and I was thinking about a man most of you probably have never heard of named Alexander Haig. Alexander Haig had been a general in the Army in the 1960s and 70s. And a very famous general. And in the 1980s, when President Reagan became president, he called on Alexander Haig to be the, the I think he was put in as, I can't remember if it was Secretary of State or if he was head of the Defense Department. But on the day that President Reagan was shot and chaos reigned in Washington, D.C., Alexander Haig, no longer wearing a suit, a, a, a uniform, but wearing a suit, stood up in front of the, the Washington Press Corps and said, I'm in charge. Everything's okay. And of course, he, he got mocked and mocked and mocked. And here he is. Here's this power-hungry guy because there was a vice president at the time, you know. And when the president's shot, usually it's the vice president who comes in. And, and, but he stood up and said, but I, I was thinking in the shower, what a man. What a man. You know, when things are going uh, to chaos, he stands up and says, okay. Okay, you can trust me. I've got it. Well, this is David. (laughs) This is the beauty of David. You are called to live a life of responsibility. But for those of you who are young, and a word to the older in a bit, but those of you who are young, responsibility doesn't begin when Goliath comes traipsing out into the valley. Responsibility in the life of David began long before Goliath appeared on the horizon. David appears to burst on the scene when he goes up against Goliath, but we're told enough about him in this passage to know that greatness did not leap out of his forehead like... uh, Who corrected me this morning? It was Jonathan, John Wagner, who corrected me and said, what was the god, the goddess that jumped out of, <laughs> what was that? What? Athena. Athena from the forehead of Zeus, right? Full formed, right? That's the legend. And it's not David, and it's never the way it is. Greatness does not come like Athena from the forehead of Zeus fully formed. Never. What you find is that David comes from a specific background and setting. 
And there are roots of greatness in David's life that may not be visible, but that are clear as you think about it. Now, in the eyes of many, including his brothers, there's no stature to David, nothing that would equal their own, let alone the stature of Goliath. He isn't a warrior. He isn't big. He isn't skilled with weapons of war. He has no reputation to intimidate Goliath with. So he looks unadorned and unformed, and it seems like here, ex nihilo, out of nothing, wham, a conquering hero. But it's, it couldn't be less true. Behind this leap into the history's pantheon of greatness that David takes here lies a childhood of preparation, of training, and most importantly, of embracing responsibility. So his roots as, as the fighter of Goliath, his roots as a king, are clearly established in his past as a shepherd. Now this is a truth that if I could, I'd redo my entire past to redo and relearn. I have a, a recurring nightmare and it appears that I share it with others because I know Tim shares it, I learned, and I think probably others do, that I find myself, I, in my dream, I am me at my age, but I wake up somehow back in my high school, Elgin High School, and I am told that I failed my senior year. And, and, that, and I say, well, <laughs> why, you know, this isn't, I, I went on from Elgin High School. I went to college and got a BA. Doesn't, that, doesn't a BA supersede a high school diploma? No, they say that BA is invalid. It's built on a false foundation. If you don't go back and do high school, that year of high school, you don't have it. Honestly, I get to have this dream. And, I, and then I argue my, my master's of divinity. I said, well, I went on beyond college and I got a master's of divinity. And they say, that doesn't count. <laughs> You're... And the, the, now I'm, and I hope you are of the opinion that when we have dreams that God is speaking to us, it's not just Freud who says that dreams have significance. The word of God makes it very clear. Freud says it's the id speaking to the ego, but Job says that while a man slumbers in his bed, God opens his ears speaking warnings in dreams and in visions in the night. And I know without question that God's, this dream is God's warning to me. And in a sense, his word of, of condemnation of not my entire life, but of a, a part of my life that's still with me that was there when I was in high school. And that was the desire not to be disciplined, but to have fun. And I, I can remember consciously making the decision about my junior year in high school that discipline wasn't worth anything, neither was it worth anything trying to live for God, but, but popularity and social life were worth living for. And I said, so I am not going to work in school, and I'm not going to go to my youth group, but I'm going to be popular. And I, I flunked seven courses my senior year of high school, but I had enough credits to, to make it through. And I could skate. I could skate on things like test scores. I could skate. And so I relied on the cheap and easy victories, and I went after the ice cream and never ate the potatoes. And I did that for year after year. I did it in college. It was easier to get B's in college and not flunk because in college they didn't flunk you for skipping class. In high school they did. So, you know, in college it, was, it didn't require anything to get a B. It required something to get an A. And I think I got two A's and two C's, and the rest were B's. You know, and, and it took nothing to get a B. It was easy 
But it was the opposite of what I needed. It was not discipline. It was not responsible. It was fleeing responsibility. So, young men and women, your grades are important. Your chores, believe it or not, are a test of your life. If you want to, to figure out the quality of gold, you, you do an assay of it. You, you test it to see how pure it is, and you come up with the purity level. If it's a ring or jewelry, it's how many carats it is, what carat gold, you know. And as you get up to, what is it, 24, that's pure. 18, 12 is less pure. Stronger, but less pure. And uh, shouldn't have used that stronger. doesn't work with the metaphor here. Um, <laughs> All right, your chores and how you perform them are God's way and your parents' way and all of our way of doing an assay of your life. You know, we know who you are by the way you approach your chores. We know who you are by the way you work around here. We see it, and, and it's not our judgment, it's God's judgment. We, we're seeing what God says about you. Because God's called you to honor your father and mother. God's called you to be responsible. David here is showing you how to be a young man. How to be a young woman. You want to lead? You want to accomplish things for God? Let me ask you, are you taking out the trash? uh, I'm not joking. When I preached this sermon at my church last fall, which I did, um, my, my youngest son was sitting right over where you are. And uh, at this point in the sermon, I don't know if others noticed it, but I looked at him and I said, and it means something if you mow the lawn after two days of nagging and then don't do the trimming and say, I can get that next week. That is not pleasing to God. You may think that your baseball and your work at Pisanella's Pizza, and I didn't say this in that sermon, okay? You may think your baseball and Pisanella's pizza and your job cooking pizza puts, you know, makes the, the trimming optional or discretionary for a week or two. But I read your character in whether you do that trimming or not. I, I know you say, well, you're a father and, and some of you are sons and young. And you say, hey, come on, I got to have some fun. Oh, you can have fun with a trimmer, you know, I mean... <laughs> There are things we won't. It's the things you don't like doing, the things you don't want to do that fulfill our estimation of you and God's judgment of your character. Plenty of young women look, look fetching in ballet tights. Don't think that doing things that boost your ego being good on the baseball field, looking good in tights, that these are things that really make you great. Really, these things are the enemy of greatness. Repent of your good looks. Repent of your, the areas of your pride. Repent of your pride. Those things are things that didn't come hard. Start taking value in the things that come hard, the things that you've actually done. It's great to have beauty and we don't despise beauty or ability in sports. But without it being improved, without it being made holy, these things are worse than useless. 
Look at David. He's out with the sheep. He's tending them. He's caring for them. And you know, there comes a day when the young women of Israel sing about David. We're told later on that the women sing, Saul has killed his thousands. David, his tens of thousands. And they're dancing with their tambourines and singing, David, 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 David. And that's wonderful and that's great. It's like having the cheerleaders cheer for you. Okay? You know, ha, 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 look at me. I've got the girls and they're singing for me. But remember, before the girls were singing for David, the sheep were out there and they never sang David's praises. They didn't go, ba, ba, David, ba, ba, David. None of that. They weren't singing David's praises. David was doing the same thing for them that he did for the women. He was preserving their lives. He was tending them and caring for them. He was protecting them from fierce predators. But they didn't care. They weren't singing his praises. He was a warrior for his flock against bees and coyotes and dogs and wolves. And then God stepped it up. And he went from class A to class AAA with the bears and the lions. And then he put them in the major leagues and said, now go for Goliath. That's how God works. He takes you up from class A to double A to triple A to the major leagues. And if you've flunked out or if you have not been able to hit at class A, you'll never make the major leagues. This doesn't end with the onset of adulthood. You want to lead in God's kingdom? I have a friend in my church who says to me, my gifts are the gift of an elder. I don't think it's appropriate that I work as a deacon on the building because I'm a good teacher. Some of you have that thought about yourself, that your gifts are too great to be used in the capacity that people want to use them in, that you should be in something higher. This is not the character of David. This is, this is such a, that attitude is such a travesty. Think if Jesus had had that attitude. My gifts are greater. My person is more important. Where would we be today if our leaders had been men like that? First danger on our path to greatness and leadership is our adopting the attitude that's summed up by a saying that I learned last fall. That saying, some of you may have heard it. It's an old Polish saying I've learned because I looked it up. It's not my circus, not my monkey. Any of you ever heard this? (laughs) Not my circus, not my monkey, not my circus, not my monkey. You've heard the saying. If not, you've... (laughs) Help the brother. Not my circus, not my monkey. Now, you may not have heard it, but you've heard it, okay? You've heard it at home. Yeah, you know, mother and dad come home and say, hey, who didn't clean up the dishes? <laughs> not my circus, not my monkey. And straight down the line, every one of the kids, not my circus, not my monkey. No, not mine. And you look at something's gone wrong at home. And you say, the ice cream is gone. And you, you come and you say, okay, someone ate this. Nope, 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 nope. And you go, there's no responsibility here. No one will take responsibility. Not my, not my circus. It's all around us. And what a threat it is to our nation, and to our church. Abortion. Well, it's a terrible evil. Not my circus, not my monkey, but it's a terrible evil. Homosexuality, homosexual marriage. Think of this woman 
out in Colorado, is it, or out in the Pacific Northwest, this florist, who's giving up her, 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 her income, threatening her, her future by standing, saying, no, I'm not going to participate in a homosexual marriage. What a great woman. She's saying, yeah, it's my circus and my monkey. I'm going to stand here. You realize it could be your circus and monkey everywhere if you just accept it, take it on, but we don't want it. It's the culture of libertarianism. It's the culture of Fox News saying, look, look at those bad people. Look at them. But uh, not my circus, not my monkey, but as long as I'm commenting on the matter, they sure are stupid monkeys, and it's a really crummy circus over there, but not mine. It's our approach. We'd like to criticize. We like to cast aspersions. "Ah," But we don't want our hands dirty. So the man of God says, well, I think I'll have to take a stand here. No one else is doing it. I will. This is David here. No one's willing to fight Goliath. What's the king going to do for the one who fights Goliath, David says. Remember, he goes around asking the question. We read in verse 30 that David turns away from the men he asked in verse 26, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away this reproach from Israel? Verse 30, we say he's been answered. The thing has been told us twice. And David's still going around to other men and saying, what's going to be done for the man who defeats this, this uncircumcised heathen fellow? What's going to be done? And he keeps on getting the same answer. Well, he gets the king's daughter. He gets great riches. And you know what? His family's free from taxation. And David goes and says, well, what's the gift? What's going to be done? And he goes up to others. And Eliab, his brother, comes down on him like a hammer and says, you slimy brother, you. I know you're out here just, uh, you're just wanting to see the battle. He understands the weight of David's question. What is David doing as he goes around asking people, what's going to be done? What's going to be done? What's going to be done? In his way, as a younger brother does, he's putting the spurs to his older brothers. Come on, guys. Hey, Eliab, you're a big man. Go on out there. You can do it. And Eliab's going, shut up. I don't want to hear it. Shut up, David. Stop talking about what's going to be done for the guy who does it. Stop it. Leave me alone. I don't want to deal with that guy. And David keeps on going around and saying, think about it. You're going to be rich. Think about how happy dad will be. We don't have to pay taxes anymore. No more taxes. And think of it. The girl is a babe. <laughs> you know? Shut up, boy. Shut up. Here's the problem. David realizes that not only does no one want to do it personally, Neither does anyone in that army want anyone else to do it. All Israel is sitting around saying, not my circus, not my monkey. Goliath comes out and issues his challenge. And everyone's saying, I didn't sleep well last night. I don't have quite the armament I need for this guy. You know, I'm not really skilled in javelin battle. And, And then David sticks his head up. He's the mole whose head comes up. And they go, oh, no, we're going to whack that mole. Bang, get down, David, get down and whack a mole. David is sticking his head up, and the first thing we do when someone starts to take responsibility and say, well, we can do something, they say, shut up, be quiet. Don't implicate us in, in your juvenile tendencies. 
It's not that easy. You don't understand. It can't be done like that. No one wants you to assume responsibility. No one wants you to claim greatness. No one. They don't want to do it, but they sure don't want you to do it either. Who are you to stand up for us? This is why leading humans is harder than shepherding sheep. There are lots of similarities, but in the end, the sheep want you to save them, and the human beings very often don't. Who are you to try and save me, the brothers ask. It's like Moses. Who are you? Who appointed you to judge over us? It's like Jesus. The Pharisees saying to Jesus, who are you? They'll accept his help, but they'll turn on him. They'll take his miracles. They'll listen to his teaching, but they will turn on him because they don't want greatness. They don't want a shepherd. They want to be wild sheep. And wild sheep are dead sheep. This is an ironclad truth, and you need to understand it, young men and young women. If a lifeguard waits for the struggling swimmer to call for help, he will be useless as a lifeguard. You will not save people if you wait for them to cry out. What a lifeguard needs to do, and if you've ever been in a life-saving class, you're taught this, is to see the people who have need and to jump, to react not to wait for a summons. If you wait for an invitation to fight Goliath, it won't come. Take responsibility. The call to greatness is found in seeing the need, not necessarily in responding to a cry for help. It's found in your zeal for the honor of God, not in the beseeching of those who don't want you to really help them. You'll never be handed an invitation. Instead, you'll see a need, and you'll see that no one is standing to meet that need, and you'll say to yourself, oh, I wish someone would stand. Won't someone please stand? And no one will. And it will slowly dawn on you that if you don't stand, no one will. That if you don't, it won't happen. And you'll wonder, should I do this? Should I? Is it just pride that makes me think I can make a difference? Maybe I should shut up and mind my own business. After all, it isn't my circus. Our church, Christ the Word, is the product of uh, a sermon, in part, that was preached at another church, uh, a church that had been known for valuing and heeding the Word of God in the Toledo area for many years. The pastor was away. The senior pastor who had built it had gone. A new pastor was there. He was out, and and an elder was preaching. And this elder delivered, I've listened to the sermon on tape, a very sort of deceptive and slippery and sophisticated sermon attacking the word of God. And what he said in this sermon was that it would be wonderful if we as a church spent less time studying the word of God and more time loving each other and obeying the word of God. Let's stop spending all our time studying the word of God. Let's start obeying. He's drawing a false dichotomy, but what he was saying was we don't need to be so hung up on scripture. We just need to be nice. And maybe if we were nice, we'd be more effective. And he was preaching this sermon. He was talking. At one point, he said it was much better in the past when people were illiterate because then they couldn't spend all their time reading and studying the word of God. They just obeyed it, which, of course, you know is a fallacy, but it's a horrible thing. It's a horrible thing. And a a great woman in our church now, um, an older woman at the time, 
in that church was a leader in the in Bible study fellowship in Toledo and and her husband was not an elder and she was a woman and so she wasn't going to stand and confront the sermon but she started praying about halfway through the sermon praying God let someone stand God let someone stand and I've listened to the tape, and suddenly my a dear friend, an elder at our church, you hear this voice, Matt, no! <laughs> and then you hear some fumbling with a microphone, and, uh, and then you hear this voice, and there's this little, a little bit of back and forth, I can't remember it. And then this very sweet and humble voice, but this voice of a man saying, but John, Jesus is the word. If you stop paying attention to the word, you don't have Jesus. And, it, and then you can hear the chaos in the congregation. But that woman has said to me that it was one of the most powerful answers to prayer that she ever experienced right then and there. That God led Matt to stand and say, this is wrong. Another elder confronted. And what happened? Did all the people say, thank you, Matt? You saved us? No, they didn't. He, he ended up out of the church. He said to the elders, he was on the elder board and the other man was, and he said, you have to judge. It's, one of us is right. And they judged him. Praise God for those men and women over the centuries who refused to mind their own business to the, to the glory of God. Praise God for them. Finally, I want to say this. The third point we see here is that first, leadership and greatness stem from the assumption of responsibility. Second, the shepherd's authority flows from God. The sheep don't want you. God has called you. Third, when God calls you, you carry his power. So David finds himself facing Goliath. It's unclear to me whether this was his intention from the outset. I don't think it was. But what is clear is that once the challenge is raised and they, they start mocking him, he doesn't shirk the challenge. It's an immense challenge, and he's a little guy, and Goliath is a giant. But let's be honest, this is typical of the Scripture. There's always the little guy and the giant. You know, it's just so frequent in Scripture. There's the guy who doesn't have a chance, Joseph, and, and that's true with his brothers, and it's true with Egypt, and, and then... There's the giant, the brothers, there's Daniel and the kingdom. There's Nehemiah and the foes. There's just, everywhere you go in scripture, it's Jesus. You know, uh, a man despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, a man from whom men turned their faces, a nothing, a nothing. And we could go on and on, but what we need to understand is that when God puts a responsibility before us, if we will act, there will be power. One of the best examples of this in Scripture, to my mind, is the, the feeding of the 5,000. The, the people have been following Jesus deeper and deeper into the wilderness. And they're 5,000 men, which means maybe the crowd was 20,000. And they're deep in the wilderness, and it's late in the day, not had anything to eat all that time. And so the disciples say to Jesus, send them away to find food. It's late. We're tired. 
But Jesus is a shepherd. And, and Jesus, Jesus loves the flock. And he feels compassion on the people. And the last thing his disciples want is Jesus to have compassion on the people. But Jesus, it says, feels compassion on them. And he says to the disciples, no, no, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they go, huh? <laughs> 12 to 20,000? Uh, we have a few loaves and a few fish. We have nothing. They say, five loaves, two fish. Jesus, not our circus, not our monkey. Let's go on. And Jesus said, no, no. Start with what you have. Start with what you have. Start with where you are. If there is a conflict or if there is a need, start where you are and with what you have. You understand that when David goes out against Goliath, he goes out and King Saul tries to fit him up with armor. And David says, Ugh, man, I can't handle this armor. I mean, it's just not, it's not me. And Saul says, what are you going to do? And he says, well, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to take the, my sling. And the sling was the shepherd's little thing, you know. It was not a fearsome weapon. It's kind of like young men. You know, you've been faithful mowing the lawn and using the weed whacker. It's, I'm going to take my weed whacker, Saul. I don't need your sword. I'm going out there with the weed whacker. Let me use the weed whacker. You wait until you see what a weed whacker can do. Yeah? And Saul says, what? And he goes out there with his weed whacker, and he starts whirling around his head, and he brings the giant down with what he has, with his weed whacker. You may not have much, but in the hands of a faithful man, it's plenty. I want to close with two exhortations. Some are called to leadership and responsibility, and you may not be. It may not be yours to be David. You may be Eliab. You may be, as Brother Shammah, you may be one of those other anonymous men. You may not be called to greatness. You may be Saul, a leader, but someone shines brighter than you on that day. Don't resent those who do what God wants them to do. Do not resent those who keep watch over you and who take up the challenges. For many years, when my brother and I went places on trips together, we would fight. Oh, did we fight. We would have fights. We can name the cities by the fights or the fights by the cities. You know, there was the San Jose fight. There was the foot of the Golden Gate Bridge fight, right, David? Yeah. There was the Westminster West Seminary fight. And, and I just couldn't stand my brother directing me all the time. I was 45 years old. Who's my older brother to tell me what to do and to make me jump to his tune now? But you know, I'm 55, and a couple of years ago, I came close to dying, and my brother acted like my brother always does. Well, David... Let's step in and help you out. You know, I've got an associate named Dave Carell, and he is a man among men. He is a, he's, a, he's a conquering hero. I'm going to send him up there to help your church. And David Carell comes up, and he helps run our church for a year. Thank you, all of you who, who helped us in that way. And I need a help. Do you need help? Let's be honest. Don't you need someone to help you? So why are you resenting the people who are helping you if they're called to help you? 
Isn't it beautiful to have people who are willing to help you? Isn't that what we should be praising God for? I got a helper. Someone's going to stand for me. You know? Don't resent those who call you to things, who challenge you, who love you, who shepherd you. Be grateful that God has raised up helpers. Don't be like my friend, Dick Schaefer, guy in my first church, who was dying of cancer and was desperately poor and had a number of kids, mostly grown, although they'd adopted a girl at late in life and she was at home. Dick Schaefer said to me, I don't know how I'm going to pay for this funeral, David. It was his own funeral. He said, I don't know what we're going to do. So I said, we can handle it. And we did. We figured out everything. We, got it. we took his body to be embalmed. We glued his eyes shut. We did all that stuff for him. And, uh, but before he died, he, we asked one of the men in the church who was a great cabinet maker on the side. He had a business, but then he loved me. We said, hey, Jim, would you make Dick's coffin? And Jim said, I'll do that. And he bought hickory, and he built a coffin with a mitered top that rose on all four sides. It was a work of art, this coffin. And his wife got out satin and did an upholstered interior, and it was the finest coffin you've ever seen in your life. Well, Dick said, what's the coffin going to look like? And I said, well, Dick, tell you what, we can show you. So we drove him over to the wood shop behind Jim's house and showed him the coffin. And here is this, it, it was a work of art, this coffin. Just one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen, pieces of woodwork. And the inside with the tufted satin, unbelievable. And what does Dick do? I wanted a pine box. You don't yell at a dying man for being ungrateful. But I thought, Dick, you, you. Yeah, I still resent it. (laughs) He couldn't be grateful for help. He couldn't be grateful. He had to find fault with help rather than just bask in the glory of having a helper. Please don't resent those who help, those who take responsibility. Finally, if you're a helper, remember that Moses gets tired of the bleeding of the sheep and towards the end of his life says, you people, I'm sick of you. And if you're a helper and responsible, then don't give up that attitude of love and care and let your your annoyance prevail. Don't grow annoyed. You get the king's daughter as your wife. Okay? Actually, for you, what you get to do is you get to marry the king's son. So, don't think of yourself as a loser. You may have fractious sheep, but you get the prize in the end. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Bless us through it, we pray. Bless this congregation. Thank you for her. We pray, Father, that we will be responsible men and women. In Jesus' name, amen.